Nyata. Hello. It's Alison here, and I'm the pastor at Sanctuary, and we're based on Pequaran country in Warrnambool. Last week, we heard how Jesus describes the coming of the Lord as being like a thief who breaks into a house at night. And in the context of Matthew's story, this suggests he'll look poor, scruffy, and dangerous, and he'll probably take something away. Well, this week, we have another surprising image, more taking away. John the baptizer is thundering in the wilderness, calling for repentance, that is, a turning back to God. People from all over stream down to the river, where they confess their sins and are baptized in water. But one is coming, says John, who will baptize them in the Holy Spirit and fire. It sounds like Jesus is not only a thief, but an arsonist. And you'll find the full text in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. But we'll begin by turning to sin. For many of us, sin is a dirty word, because many of us are recovering Christians. We are recovering from churches which preach judgment and condemnation, triggering fear and shame. We are recovering from feeling manipulated. We are recovering from the threat of hell, and we're recovering from very bad theology. We are recovering from mincing moralism, which taught us to be afraid of our own desires. We're recovering from abusive shepherds and church leaders who stole our innocence away. We're recovering from all the ways the word sin has been wielded like a weapon to make us compliant and afraid. And yet, we are here. We are here, I suggest, because we are weighed down and exhausted. We are here because we want something our lives simply cannot give. We are here because no matter how much we buy and no matter how hard we strive and no matter what we do, there is still a great emptiness inside. Our lives are full of desert winds and harsh thorns and terrible longing. We know sterility, we know disharmony, we know depression and doubt. And we are here because we see the catastrophe of normality. We don't want to sleepwalk through our lives. And we are here because we know how often we are our own worst enemies. And so we are here to acknowledge and repent of sin. Not the sin of wagging fingers and purse-slip preachers and manipulative moralizers, but real sin. We are here to name and turn away from the powers and principalities which drive us and the messages which cajole us and the noise which issues from every media outlet and the culture which shapes us. We are here to reject the claim that our value is limited to what we do and what we buy and that we can do anything and have everything and be everything to everyone. We are here to challenge the lie that we are always in competition, that big is always better, and that we are in ultimate control. And we are here because it is sin which spreads these lies and causes disconnection and estrangement from ourselves, from each other, from the earth, and from God. 
Perhaps the people of Jerusalem and Judea felt similarly. They, too, were surrounded by noise. The noise of the Pharisees preaching salvation through obedience to the law. The noise of the Sadducees preaching salvation through purity of bloodline. And the noise of the Romans preaching salvation through colonization, military power and the protections of wealth. And so, filled with divine discontent, the people poured out of the cities and towns, away from the harsh preachers and self-righteous theologians, away from the empty words and hollow rituals, away from the narrow-minded legalism and the violence of sacrifice, away from the politicians and the military commanders and the consumer messaging and 24-7 living, and they headed to the wilderness. And what did they find there? A thundering prophet calling them to repent. Repent. It's a simple word. It just means turning. Turning away from the lies and turning towards God. And so they turned away from the noise and turned towards God and confessed their sins all that wearied and confused them, all that tipped them in false directions and inclined them to destruction. And they gratefully received the water bath, which washes it all away. But, said John, one is coming who is more powerful than me. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And you'll find that in Matthew chapter 3 verses 11 and 12. Well, last week we heard how Jesus will come like a thief in the night. How he'll probably appear poor and scruffy and somewhat threatening and how he'll probably take something away. Now it sounds like Jesus will come like an arsonist, flamethrower in hand, ready to burn and wreak havoc wherever he goes. And for those of us recovering from hellfire preaching, for those who have been taught a violent, vindictive, wrathful God, who becomes enraged at the very idea of sin, well, this sounds both plausible and horrific. It sounds particularly horrific since in our minds it's often linked with God's wrath. God seems to thunder at the people coming for baptism. You brood of vipers, he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then the fire and the wrath and the judgment get mixed up in our minds and it's difficult not to cower. But most of us here are grown-ups and we can face those things which scare us. So let's take a deep breath and then let's look at the wrath passage again because I don't think it's something to worry about. It's not even directed at you. So first, notice that the wrath named by John is not attributed to God. We know from history that the violence which smashes Israel is Roman military violence. It's the violence of empire. 
And within a few years of this episode, it will devastate Jerusalem and demolish the temple. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? asked John. But we shouldn't assume that the wrath is God's. Given both history and context, it seems more likely that he means the wrath of the Roman Empire. Second, notice that John doesn't direct his strong words towards everyone but only to the Pharisees and Sadducees who are coming against baptism. Now, most English translations tell us that they're coming for baptism, but I find this highly unlikely. The Greek word epi can go either way. It can mean by, for, against. It's about a relationship between things. Now, in those days, baptism was a cleansing activity which happened within the temple system, not down by the river. And it was controlled by the high priests and the priestly class, not by random prophets going solo. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are the priestly class. They're not going to let some crazy two-bit prophet baptise them freeform in a river. So they're coming down to thunder against baptism. Because by taking this right and returning it to the people in a wild and unregulated space, John is undermining their influence and authority. This brings me to the third point. John's harsh words are not laid on the common people. They are directed at these religious leaders only for they are working with Rome to maintain their power, suppress revolution, and keep the populace quiet. And they do this in part by tying up heavy burdens, laying them on people's backs, and denying most people full participation in religious life. They regulate baptism. They limit who can eat the bread of the sanctuary. And they will not lift a finger to show a kindness on the Sabbath day. They cordon off the holy of holies. And they block foreigners and eunuchs and menstruating women and many, many others from accessing the temple at all. It's at these religious leaders that John roars. John is enraged, not by the common people, but by religious authorities who are complicit in governmental oppression, and who use religion to dominate the masses and to corral power to themselves. To the popes who whipped up the populace, even children, to engage in military invasion, colonisation and genocide, and who call these holy crusades, you brood of vipers. To the churches and pastors who colluded with Nazi Germany and the mass murder of European Jewry. To Patriarch Kirill who eggs on Putin's invasion of Ukraine and calls it divine will. To every evangelical pastor who conflates Christianity with patriotic nationalism, you slither of snakes. To the priests and bishops who negotiated with Victoria Police to overlook clergy abuse. To the religious orders who continue to block and quibble over calls for justice and restitution, you quiver of cobras. 
to the pastors who are paid brand ambassadors, who stoke competition and envy even among their followers, and who equate ministry with corporate management and Christianity with late capitalism, you tangle of taipans. And to the ministers who place barriers around the communion table and refuse to eat with all comers. Those who lobby governments to limit who can be married or even baked a wedding cake. Who stir up exclusion, condemnation and violence against LGBTIQA plus folk and their allies. You rumba of rattlesnakes. These are strong words and they are clearly directed at those who use religious power to dominate, exclude, harm and kill. To the rest of us, however, John is calling for repentance because he tells us the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's imminent. And according to Isaiah's vision in chapter 11, when it arrives, the breastfed babe shall play over the hole of the tiger snake, and the toddler shall put its hand unharmed into the nest of a copperhead. When God's culture is at hand, even the most vulnerable people will no longer be harmed by those broods of vipers, those poisonous snakes. And so John wants us all to get in on the action because it's good, good news. So what then of Jesus wielding fire like an arsonist? Is it to hurt and destroy? Well, I don't think so. They shall not hurt or destroy on my holy mountain, says the Lord in Isaiah. It would be inconsistent. John's whole point is that Jesus is not like those religious leaders who work in cahoots with empire to maintain their own power and privilege. Jesus is not like those who try to limit access to God. And Jesus is not like those who, for the sake of purity, exclude and sacrifice vulnerable people, destroying lives in the process. Jesus' fire is not the fire of invading armies, burning cities and smouldering bones. It's not the fire of religious sacrifice or the stench of burning fat. It's not the fire of divine condemnation or punishment. Instead, Jesus comes to reap a harvest, and the fire is simply for the rubbish left behind when the good in us has been gleaned. To people who usually buy their wheat, winnowed, ground, sifted, and baked. I'll spell this out. Wheat and chaff don't come from separate plants. It's not that wheat grows on one plant and chaff on another. Instead, you harvest the whole stalk and then you winnow it. And then you're left with two things, the good, nourishing, life-giving seed, that is the wheat, and the husk or hull or shell and stalk, that is the chaff. The chaff is the rubbish, and Jesus will burn the chaff, so there's nothing left in the granary but healthy grain, grain ready for feeding people, or for sowing abundantly, or even for fermenting for joy. I began 
by talking about sin. And we end at the burning of chaff. So what might this chaff be? To people who've been burned by the church, so to speak, I suggest that Jesus is coming to burn away the residue, the toxic memories, the harmful theologies, the pernicious lies. Jesus is coming to burn away your shame and fear and grief and anger and the internalised judgment and accusatory whispers which bubble up from within. Jesus is coming to burn away self-loathing in your sense of unworthiness or futility or despair. Jesus is coming to burn away your striving, your grasping and your desperate need to prove yourself holier than the hypocrites. Jesus is coming to burn away all these things and more because he loves you and he's coming for the harvest and there's a sweet kernel within you that he seeks. So turn away from the patriarchal institutions, the fenced off rites and rituals, the leaders who abuse power in order to dominate. Come down to the river flowing through the wilderness, the margins or wild spaces, where there is little wealth or resource, but abundant spirit and grace. Come because the kingdom of heaven is near. Come turn once again to God and confess everything which disrupts your relationship. And may the holy harvester's refining fire burn all the chaff away. Amen. Now there's always more to read on our website, that's sanctuarybaptist.org. And this week there's a poem by one of our attenders on the sorts of preparations we might make during Advent. Sanctuary is funded entirely by members and supporters. And if you'd like to support the work of this little church, you can make a donation via PayPal. And you'll find the details for this on the website. This week's reflection was prepared on the lands of the Peak Warring people of the Eastern Ma Nation, a land which was taken by force and which has never been ceded. This week, punk honey eaters are feasting in the Mexican sage and the poas are weighed down with their burgundy-tinted seed. The river continues to stream into the ocean and offshore you can see the sharp line between murky silt and clear blue sea. I pay my respects to elders past and present. The peace of the land, earth, sea, sky and waters be with us all. Amen.